All right. Uh, good morning again. Uh, I, it's so good to, to sing with you. Uh, it's so good to hear you sing songs like that. Um, I had an experience last week with Mr. Ralph, uh, who we usually lock in the soundproof cage um, to be able to control the, the volume of the drums, the level of the drums. We have to put him in there. And so he sits in there and he wears headphones so that he can hear what's going on out here as far as the other instruments go. But he usually can't hear you. See where I'm going with this. Last week, he was not in there. He was right here, and he didn't have his ears on. Um, he had his ears open, and he told me after the service what a blessing and what a joy it was, uh, not only to sing with you, which he always does in the box, uh, but to hear you singing, um, a blessing that was. It is a gift to worship God together. It, it is a gift to unite our voices together and to sing with one another, and we don't want to take that for granted. Uh, we want to enjoy that every chance we get, right? All right, do you have your Bible this morning? 1 Peter chapter 5 is where you need to turn. 1 Peter chapter 5. Last week we looked at a passage uh, that may have felt like it had no application for you as members of the church because the direct exhortation was to elders, right? Peter speaks directly to the elders among you, which, let me remind you, is one of three terms that the New Testament uses interchangeably to refer to the office that Joe, Dylan, and I hold here at First Baptist Church. We usually use the word pastor, not elder, um, but three words are used interchangeably in the New Testament. It, this was definitely a helpful text last week for us, us pastors, calling us to the work of shepherding the flock of God among us. It called us also to a particular kind of shepherding, one that was modeled off of Jesus, who is referred to in the text as the chief shepherd. It is a model that is demonstrated for us by Peter in this very passage. Namely, that we exercise oversight, not under compulsion, but voluntarily. And we do the work, not for sordid gain, but with eagerness. And we don't lord this authority that is given to us over the flock, but rather we serve as examples. The text also told us that in the end there is a reward. And when the chief shepherd appears, he, we will receive the unfading crown of glory. And that's the kind of thing that keeps us going when the going gets tough. And speaking of going getting tough, let's not forget that what we looked at last week was linked to the last few weeks about suffering by the word therefore. It started with the word therefore. So it's not a whole new section of teaching. It's linked to what we have been learning about suffering. And also don't forget that all of this that was for the elders was written to the whole church, not just to the elders. It's not a separate thing for the elders off by themselves. It is for the elders in the presence of of the rest of the church. So that implies that there is a responsibility and an expectation on all of us who hear that word, not just on the elders who are particularly exhorted. And so when we try to draw the applications, I said there's an obvious application for us elders, us pastors, that we are to do this work and we are to do this work this way. I love it when God spells out what we should do and how we should do it. And it's not always easy to do. Uh, it's a challenge, but it's clear uh, that we should do this work in this way. And the application for you, I invited you to help us do that. Help us do that with prayer. Help us do that by encouragement. Help us do that by following as we lead. Help us do that by growing as Christians. Like I talked to you about how teachers love it when their students understand things, when the lights come on and they grasp concepts. Well, it's, a, it's an infinitely greater thing when pastors see their people walking faithfully with Jesus, taking new steps into maturity. It's a beautiful and encouraging thing. 
And there was one other way that, that I want to encourage you to help us that I didn't talk about last week. And I read a statement, and I've seen it before, but it stuck with me this week. I was reminded that every, every shepherd is also a sheep. Like, don't, don't forget that we are also trying to follow Jesus as one of his disciples. Don't, don't forget that we are also needy. Don't forget that we also struggle. Every shepherd is also a sheep, and so you can help watch over our souls as well. And then finally, in application last week, I asked the question that I want to constantly be asking, who's next? Who's the next one to be called out to uh, oversee? Who's the next one to be called out overseas uh, to preach the gospel among the nations? Who's next uh, to be called out to serve as a pastor of a local church? God is stirring some of you up to this. Um, And it's not just young people that God is stirring up to this. It is retired folks. It is singled folks. It is married folks. It is all kinds of folks that God is calling out to a new kind of service. So I want to put it in front of you yet again today. Who's next? Who's next to say, yes, Lord, I will go. Well, this week, what we're going to see in 1 Peter chapter 5 is a very much more specific application for all of us, especially those of us who are not elders. We're going to focus on concepts like submission and humility in the dance of church life. And let me say right off the bat that submission and humility are not popular concepts these days. Submission and humility are not seen as virtues in our world. And they weren't seen as virtues in Peter's world in the first century either. In fact, they were mostly seen as weakness in his world. And they are mostly seen as weakness in our world. Humility and submission are not seen as strengths. And so, When we come to places like this, where the word of God calls us to something that seems totally opposite of what our culture is celebrating, and that seems totally opposite of what our flesh is desiring, we have a choice. We have a choice. We either obey the Lord, or we live our lives in active rebellion against him. On days like this, we either obey the Lord, or we live our lives in active rebellion against him. We either submit to our all-wise, all-loving creator and redeemer, or we thumb our noses at him and live as seems best to us. This is going to be a war today. As we look at a text that is very clear about how we should live, that goes against our flesh and goes against the larger culture, there will be a war going on within you as a believer because the enemy is going to whisper, you don't need humility You don't need humility. You're something special and people should serve you. You don't need submission. You don't submit to anyone. That kind of talk comes straight from the enemy and he will whisper it to every one of us in this room today. We want to hear the voice of the Lord though over that, right? Because he speaks with clarity in the text. Today we're only going to look at verse 5. We're going to focus all of our attention on verse 5. But I want to read verses 1 through 5 so that you see the context and how this is connected to what we looked at last week. So 1 Peter chapter 5 starting at verse 1. This is God's word. Don't forget that and receive it as God's word. Therefore, I exhort the elders among you as your fellow elder and witness of the sufferings of Christ and a partaker also of the glory that is to be revealed. Shepherd the flock of God among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but voluntarily, according to the will of God. And not for sordid gain, but with eagerness, nor yet as lording it over those allotted to your charge but proving to be examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Verse 5, you younger men, likewise, be subject to your elders. And all of you, clothe yourselves with humility toward one another. For God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. 
Let's pray together. Father in heaven, you know best. You know best. You made everything that exists and you made us in your image. You sustain every atom in the universe and you hold us in the palm of your hand. You have chosen us. You have caused us to be born again. You have called us out of darkness into your glorious light. You have redeemed us with the precious blood of your son, our Lord Jesus Christ. So we are yours. And you have every right to tell us how to live. We are fools to think that we know better than you. We are fools to think that our ways are better than your ways. And yet, it's a struggle. There is a war within us. And so we ask that you would give us soft hearts. Give us open ears. Remind us that we are strangers and aliens here in this world. And that it makes perfect sense for us to live differently from our neighbors. So for the health of the church. So for the glory of your name. So for the witness to the world. Grow us today, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So as we look at verse 5, as we look at it closely, we're going to see three parts. First, we're going to see a charge to the younger men to submit to their elders. Secondly, we're going to see a charge to all of you, all of us, to clothe ourselves with humility toward one another. And then third, we're going to see the basis or the ground of that second call to humility from Proverbs chapter 3, verse 34. So we're going to see two calls and a basis or the ground for that second call. That's the way it's going to work today. So as we look at the first bit of verse 5 and we see Peter say, you younger men, likewise be subject to your elders, we want to ask a few questions. I want to ask a few questions and seek a few answers. First question is, what does likewise mean here? Why does Peter use the word likewise? New American Standard Translation puts that word later in the sentence. You, younger men, likewise be subject to your elders. But in the original Greek, it's actually the first word that's going on here. It says, likewise, you younger men, be subject to your elders. And so likewise here is a transition word. And it's a transition word that Peter has already used a few times in this letter. In fact, if you look back at chapter 3, verse 1, he says, in the same way. Or likewise, you wives, be submissive to your own husbands. He turns right around and does the same thing in verse 7 of chapter 3 when he says, you husbands, in the same way, or you husbands, likewise, live with your wives in an understanding way. So the idea of the transition here with the word likewise is not that it's a transition in thought, but rather it's a transition in the target audience. It's not a new concept, it's a new target audience. Audience. The concept or the thought here has been about leadership within the church. It's been about the relationship between the sheep and the shepherds. And he has already addressed the shepherds, so now, likewise, he will address the sheep. Catch how this is going? Not a new thought, not a whole new paragraph. Shouldn't be a paragraph, shouldn't be a chapter break, maybe even shouldn't be a verse break. We're just going to continue the same concept, the same theme but we're going to target a different audience. And Peter seems to really zoom in on a specific portion of the herd for this word, right? He says, likewise, you younger men. So that raises a question, who are these younger men? Some scholars argue that this is a particular classification of members in the early church, a particular group of Christians in the early church. And they cite the story of Ananias and Sapphira in Acts chapter 5 to build this argument. 
If you remember, Ananias and Sapphira, they sold a piece of land and they brought some of the proceeds to the church and they said they brought all of the proceeds from the church, right? And he drops dead. Do you remember this? And who comes to get him? The young men. The young men come and carry him off. And then later when she shows up and tells the same lie, uh, Peter says, do you hear the sound of the young men who have just come back from burying your husband? Right? And so they build this whole argument that it's a particular group of men, a recognized grouping of potential leaders in the church that's seen in Acts chapter 5. I think that's a stretch, just to be honest with you. I, I, don't, I don't think you can build quite that much off of what's going on in Acts chapter 5 to say there's a classification, a category of, in this room of younger men. All right? Some, on the other hand, say that this is a super general reference that stands merely in contrast to elders and basically refers to anyone who's not an elder. This is a really interesting thought, especially since the word here for young men is an adjective. It's not a noun, it's an adjective. It literally literally reads, you youngers. Like if you're looking for the opposite of elders, we would say youngers, right? So like not elders, but youngers. And so it's like some people say it's this general address to everyone in the church who's not an elder, And that may make some sense, but I'm not sure about that either. It seems to me that the most simple reading is the correct reading. That this is a direct call to action for the younger folks in the church. The younger men in particular, the form of the adjective is masculine here. So it's a particular directive to the younger men within the church. I think that's what's going on here. And it's precisely that group, the group of young men within the church, who need to be reminded to submit to the elders of the church. Is that fair to say? Edmund Clowney definitely takes this position when he says, it's not surprising that young people should be singled out in this call to submission. Our culture did not invent the generation gap. You believe that? Have younger men in particular always been especially resistant to authority? I think historically we would say absolutely. It's always been this way. Since the fall, anyway, Wayne Grudem, another theologian, agrees when he says it is probably because the younger people were generally those who would most need a reminder to be submissive to authority within the church. So, young men, listen up. This is particularly addressed to you. And I think Peter himself is probably sensitive to this because he could recall his days as a young man. If you look at Peter's life in the Gospels as a young man, Was he the one who was always submissive to elders, always submissive to authority? No, he was the one who was bold enough to rebuke Jesus. He was the one who was always speaking up. He was the one who pulled his sword in the Garden of Gethsemane ready to fight, right? Peter is one who's especially aware that young men are prone to resist authority. And so in his letter to the church, he singles them out within the church. And he says, young men, submit yourself to the elders, which raises the next question, right? Who are the elders? What does Peter mean by elder here? And strangely, there are some who argue that his use of the word elder here is far different from his use in the previous few verses. They see his use of elder here as a general reference to people who have had a lot of birthdays, people who are just older. They take both younger and older to refer primarily to age. That, coupled with the exhortation to be subject which they take essentially to mean show respect. Younger folks show respect for older folks is basically the way they interpret and apply this passage. So the application comes out like a call to southern politeness. 
the southern etiquette. And when we lived in Mississippi, that was one of the first things I learned how to do. When we moved to Mississippi, one of the first things I learned was to say, yes, sir, and no, sir. Yes, ma'am, and no, ma'am. I didn't do that here. We don't, we don't do that growing up in southern Illinois. But I had to learn that when I moved to Mississippi. And the other thing that I learned is that if there is a person who is one minute older than you, if they are one minute older than you, you never refer to them by simply their first name. You, you ne- I would never call you Joe. I would never call you Charlie. I would call you Mr. Joe, Mr. Charlie. I would never call you Joe. Only with you, I would, ne- I would call you Pastor Joe or Brother Joe, right? We would, never, we would never call someone out without using that title. And some people use this text to say, that's, what, that's what's going on here. That's what, that's what Peter is commanding for the church. Now, don't get me wrong. I think all that's good. I think we need more respect flowing toward older persons from younger persons in Harrisburg. But surely Peter's talking about something bigger than that, right? It would be a super drastic change for Peter to use elder in the last breath in the very technical sense to refer to the church office and then use that very same word to refer merely to older people in the next breath. The context here, plus his use of the word likewise that we just talked about, link all of this with last week and indicate that he is still referring here to the church office, right? He's, still, he's saying to the younger men within the church to submit to the elders in the church, to the pastors of the church, which brings us to our next question. If we now know what likewise means, we know who the younger men are, we know who the elders are, what does be subject mean? That's the call to action. Be subject, younger men, be subject to the elders. Well, good news is this is a word that we're familiar with. Even just in 1 Peter, we've seen this. So much so that you could say that submission is a theme of 1 Peter. That word means to place yourself under, to rank under, to be subject to. It's a word that's used in the Gospels to refer to Jesus under Mary and Joseph in his childhood. He, he submitted to them. He was subject to them. That's a, that's a crazy thought. But he was subject to them in his childhood. We see it in the Gospels. We see the demons subject to Jesus in the Gospels. We see that they are submissive to Jesus as the authority in the Gospels. We see citizens called to put themselves under governing authorities in Romans and also in 1 Peter. We see in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, that great text that we sing about, uh, made some reference to at least, uh, about death having no sting, death having no victory. We also see that all things, all things are put in subjection, in submission to Christ, right? All things come under Christ as the authority. In 1 Peter, we've seen it in the call to submit ourselves to every human institution, We are to be subject to every human institution in chapter 2, verse 13. We see it when the servants are called to submit to their masters in chapter 2, verse 18. We see wives are to submit to their own husbands in chapter 3. We see in chapter 3 also angels and authorities and powers are subject to Christ. So we keep seeing this, right? And that is the same picture that he calls young men to with the elders of the church. Young men, be subject to... To the elders, young men, submit yourselves 
to the elders. And this is a countercultural idea for sure. That young men would submit themselves to officers in the church, to pastors. That's countercultural. And yet it is the design of God for his church to operate this way. Tom Schreiner said, they should not be resisting the initiatives of leaders and complaining about the direction of the church. That's the posture of submission. Not resisting initiatives. Not complaining about the direction of the church. That's the expectation. Young men, submit yourselves to the elders. Now this is not without caveat, not without exception, of course. As with all the other calls to submission in First Peter, submission to government, submission to your boss, submission to your spouse... Peter is not calling you to follow elders into unbiblical territory. Certainly, if the elders of the church lead you in an unbiblical way, you you are actually responsible to say, I'm going to resist that. But if they are following the book, and if they are honoring Jesus, the expectation is that the young men would submit to them, would follow that leadership. Notice also, like the other calls to submission in 1 Peter, the imperative is given to those who submit It is not elders bring those young men into subjection. It's not the way it goes. It says, young men, listen, be subject to the elders. Be subject to the elders. That's what he says. So therefore, it is your responsibility to submit, not my responsibility to bring you into submission. That's the way it works in God's word. And we should do it with gladness. So what does this look like? This command. Likewise, younger men, be subject to your elders. What does this look like in the church? What does this look like at First Baptist Church? Well, I say it looks like a dance, and I use this image often around here. It looks like a dance, a beautiful dance. Not just the elders and the young men, but the whole church dancing together. Like we will lead and you follow, and we'll follow the music, and we'll be together, and it will be a beautiful thing and a delight, not only to those who are dancing, but to those who watch. Scott McKnight said, since they, that is the elders, have already been instructed to lead, not by domination, but by example, we can assume that submission here is not some onerous task. Rather, it was joyfully acceptable to those who wanted to live in accordance with God's will. We talked last week about our responsibility to lead, to shepherd the flock of God among us. Not only what we should do, but how we should do it, right? And here we're talking about your responsibility. Maybe particularly the young men, but not restricted to the young men, but to all the church to follow that leadership. And what I want to say is, at a girl, First Baptist Church, at a girl, First Baptist Church, for the most part, and most of the time, we dance really well together. I think. I think especially when I talk to other pastors in other churches who are like constantly fighting their people over every little thing, I don't see us dancing like that. It's not an ugly picture. Maybe, maybe you think it is ugly. I don't know. But I feel like we're dancing pretty well together. We don't, always, we don't always delight in every step. We don't always rejoice in every tune that we're dancing to. But I think we dance together, and I want to ask that we would keep doing that in, in the days ahead, that we would continue to dance together that we would obey the word of God as it is spelled out here in 1 Peter chapter 5 for the elders to lead in such a way that brings honor to the Lord and for you to submit in such a way that brings honor to the Lord. At the beginning of verse 5, he says, you younger men, likewise, be subject to your elders. 
And then he goes on and says, and all of you, and all of you clothe yourselves with humility toward one another. This is the second call. The first call is for the young men to submit themselves to the elders, right? Not just the young men, but the young men as representative of most likely not to do that, implying that the whole church should do that. And now he broadens the audience even more to include all the congregation, all the Christians, elders, youngers, and everyone else, right, is brought into this. And this is a command that applies to all of us. All of you clothe yourselves with humility toward one another. The basic call here is for humility to be the defining feature in our relationships with one another. Humility is the defining feature in our relationships with one another. And this is not a Pastor Peter concept. He's not original here. This is the New Testament expectation through and through. That's why we read from Philippians chapter 2 earlier. That's why we, we heard this, have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, right? Not all about himself, but serving. In fact, giving his life to serve. Have that attitude of humility toward one another. We see it in Philippians chapter 2. We see it in Colossians chapter 3. Look on the screen. It says, So as those who have been chosen by God, holy and beloved, put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience, bearing with one another, forgiving each other, whoever has a complaint against anyone. Just as the Lord forgave you, so also should you. Put on a heart of humility. Among other things that are like Christ, Put on a heart of humility. In Ephesians chapter 4, we see a similar thing. Therefore, I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness and patience, showing tolerance for one another in love, being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Humility is going to be a key feature in that, in preserving unity. In Luke chapter 14, Jesus says it like this. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. Jesus talks a lot to the disciples about humility. In the Gospels, Jesus speaks a lot to the disciples about humility because they are constantly pulling stunts full of pride. You remember James and John's mom coming to Jesus and saying, Hey, when you take your throne, my boys get special place. You remember that? One on your right and one on the left. And she says, you, he says, you have no idea what you're asking, lady. You remember that? They're constantly pulling stunts like that. They are arguing as they go about their way. Who's the greatest among us? And Jesus says, no, no, no. It's not the way it works in my kingdom. You don't get yourself exalted. You humble yourself. I'll exalt you. That's the picture. It's everywhere in the scriptures. Romans chapter 12. For, though, for through the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think more highly of himself than he ought to think. You know what that's called? Humility. But to think so as to have sound judgment, as God has allotted to each a measure of faith. Last one. I could do this all day. We could do that. Literally, we could do this all day long. Talk about places in the scriptures where God commands us toward humility. But I'll give you an example. John chapter 3. John the Baptist other than Jesus, John the Baptist is like the, the hallmark of humility, right? Because of this one statement at the end of this text. You yourselves are my witness that I said, I am not the Christ. I'm not the Christ. I've been sent ahead of him. He who has the bride is the bridegroom. But the friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly 
because of the bridegroom's voice. Like all, all of that. Don't read the last part. Don't read the last part yet. All of that is humility, right? I'm not the Christ. I just came before him. I'm not the, I'm not the bridegroom. Like I'm just the best man. The joy, the joy is really his, and it's all about him. And then at the end, he says the greatest thing, right? He says, he must increase, but I must decrease. That's what humility looks like, humility toward God in particular. But it's that kind of humility that is to mark our relationships with one another, right? And all of you, all of you clothe yourselves with humility toward one another. That's what he says. The imperative is the word that's translated clothe yourselves. Clothe yourselves with this humility is the way Peter describes this. And it's a super interesting word. It's only used here in the New Testament. In other literature outside of the Bible, it's a specific reference to the scarf or the apron of a slave. So so the word he uses here to clothe, all of you, clothe yourselves with humility is a reference to the girding up of a slave. And while this is not the word that is used in John chapter 13 that we read a minute ago, I am completely convinced that Peter is reflecting on that scene in the upper room just before Jesus was crucified when he calls the church to clothe themselves with humility. That's why we read it earlier in the service. I'll remind you of what it says in John chapter 13. So when he had washed their feet and taken his garments and reclined at the table, he said to them, do you know what I have done for you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, the Lord and the teacher, washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's. For I gave you an example that you should do as I did to you. In that scene in the upper room, when Jesus girded himself like a slave and washed their feet, even more so at the crucifixion itself, Jesus not only called his followers to be humble, He demonstrated what that humility should look like. This is good for us, right? If we are called to clothe ourselves with humility toward one another, we are not left to our own imaginations to figure out what that humility should look like. It looks like service. It looks like sacrifice. It looks like selflessness. It doesn't look like getting your own way all the time. It doesn't look like getting to the front of the line every time. It doesn't look like having people serve you. It doesn't look like bossing other people around. You know what it looks like? You know what humility looks like? It looks like Jesus. We are to be humble like he is humble. And he shows us what that humility looks like, not just when he washes the feet of the disciples, but when he goes to the cross in their place. The humility to which we are called is humility that is service-oriented, that is sacrificial, and that is selfless. When John Piper talked about this, he asked the question, why the imagery of clothing? And I thought this was gold. He said, clothing was used as one way to show the distinctions in the culture of the day. Like you could tell by the clothes somebody wore if they were rich or poor. You could tell by the clothes that somebody wore in this day if they were educated or not. If they were free or a slave. You could tell if they were high or low, whatever you want to say, you could tell a lot about a person by the clothes that they wear. And so Peter plays off of that imagery of clothing, and he says, clothe yourselves with humility toward one another. The clothes that you should be wearing so that people can tell something about you is humility toward one another. And Piper brings the punchline when he says, our uniform is to be humility. 
I loved wearing a uniform when I was a kid and played on a team, right? I, I, I loved putting on the uniform, looking like the rest of the guys, showing that we're together. We're fighting on one side of the ball. We're, we're playing on one side of the field. We are together working toward a common goal. And I love Piper's imagery here when he says the uniform that we put on as Christ people is humility. It's not Yankee pinstripes. It's humility. It's not, it's not green and gold Packers. It's humility. That's the uniform that we put on. And when we put that on, people will know what team we're on. They'll be able to tell to whom we belong, what kind of people we are by humility. They will know we are Christians by humility <laughs> and also love. That's the way the song goes. Remember, this exhortation, this command is for all of us. So elders, elders, be humble in your leadership. Young men, be humble in your following leadership. All of us, be humble in our interactions with one another. This is God's design for the church. Tom Schreiner said, smooth relations in the church will be preserved if the entire congregation adorns itself with humility. When believers recognize that they are creatures and sinners, they are less apt to be offended by others. I love this last line. He says, humility is the oil that allows relationships in the church to run smoothly and lovingly. Amen to that. And we see it most clearly when pride clogs up the gears. We see it when we puff ourselves up, we exert our own rights, our own privileges, our own preferences. When we say, I am first and you'll be last, it clogs up the workings of the church, right? But when we say, I'm last and you be first, in fact, let's all be last and let Jesus be first, then it works smoothly. That's oil in the machine. I love that picture. So I say, amen, Lord, give me humility. Give me humility, especially when the heat gets cranked up. Especially when the heat gets cranked up, we need humility to oil the gears. When the heat gets cranked up because of persecution or controversy or trials or suffering, it is then that we need humility more than ever. And it is then that the enemy tries to ramp up our pride. When there's trouble, he wants us to be first. The enemy whispers, you don't have to take that from them. You don't have to listen to them. They don't know what they're talking about. You've got rights. Lord, give us humility. Lord, give me humility. So there's a call to younger men to submit themselves to the elders. There's a call to all of us to clothe ourselves with humility. And then there's a basis for that call. Like Peter is not just going to say that with his apostolic authority and leave it. He's going to say that and he's going to use Scripture and the logic of Scripture to ground this call from verse chapter 3, verse 34 of Proverbs. For God is opposed to the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. The imagery in the first part of that is super dramatic. The word for opposed means to resist. It means to range in battle against. It means to square off. Like if I said you want to square off after church, we're not talking about country dancing, right? We're talking about what Bud Logeman refers to as rat-a-tat-tat. You square off, we're going to fight. That's the picture. God opposes the proud. It is military language. It's a strong word with military background and usage. And it only occurs five times in the New Testament. 
It's used to describe the Jewish leadership's resistance to Paul when he comes to town preaching the gospel. When Paul comes to town and says, Jesus is the Messiah, they resist him. They oppose him, just like God opposes the proud. And they were ready to kill him for that. You know that, right? They tried, maybe even succeeded one time. It was not, oh, we disagree. We simply, well, let's agree to disagree, Paul. No, they would take him out of town and stone him. That's the kind of opposition that this word reflects. My question for you is, do you want God to square off against you? Do you want God squared off against you? Do you want God to range himself in battle against you? To line up on the other side of the battlefield against you? This text says God opposes the proud. That's his disposition toward the proud. And we see it in action all throughout the scriptures. He brings down the prideful. We see it in the Tower of Babel early on in the Old Testament, right? They built this big tower and they said, look at us. Look what we have made. We will, we will reach to heaven. And God had to come down even to see it, right? And then he brought it down and scattered them out. We see it with kings all throughout the history books of the Old Testament. We see it with Peter. We see Peter's pride, right? Just as Jesus starts talking about going to the cross, he says, I will go with you. I will go to the death with you, right? I'm not, I'm not one of those weak ones who will fall away. I'm going to stay with you no matter the cost. And Jesus says, really? I'm telling you before the rooster crows tomorrow morning, you'll deny me three times. Sure enough, that's what happens. Peter was full of pride. And he was brought down. And then later, on the seashore, Jesus says, do you love me? Remember that? Man, that was humbling too, right? Humiliating even as he was restored. My question for you is, do you want God squared off against you? God opposes the proud. But look, look. But he gives grace to the humble. He gives grace to the humble. Now, understood wrongly, this could undermine the gospel as if to make humility the means by which we earn grace from God. If you misunderstand it, you'll say, oh, I got it. I give humility and he gives grace. That's the exchange. That's what I bring to the table is humility. Rather than see humility as a work that earns grace, let's see humility as the only posture that could possibly receive grace. It's the posture of saving faith that says, I can't live without this grace. Piper says humility is the precondition of emptiness and helplessness into which grace is poured. The proud would never say like Isaiah, Woe is me, I am ruined. I am a man of unclean lips and I live amongst a people of unclean lips for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Only the humble will say something like that. The proud would never say like Paul, wretched man that I am, who will set me free from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Only the humble say things like that. We're going to talk more about this position of humility toward God next week. This theme of humility is going to continue on next week. In particular, our humility before the Lord, where, where we receive grace, right? For now, brothers and sisters, let's clothe ourselves with humility toward one another. That's the call of this text. Clothe yourselves with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud and he gives grace to the humble. We don't want God's opposition. We want his grace. And so let's pursue humility toward one another. C.S. Lewis says, humility, this is a good, good definition, humility is not thinking less of yourself. It's thinking of yourself less. It's a good word, right? It's not just saying, oh, I don't have anything to offer. 
It's just thinking about yourself less, thinking about the people around you more. Jesus says it like this, whoever exalts himself shall be humbled and whoever humbles himself shall be exalted. So here's the application. Let's dance. You want to dance? You've never heard the Baptist preacher say that. Like that, that's not application in the Baptist church. Let's dance. Let's dance. We elders, we pastors, we will lead. Like we talked about last week, there was a whole week given to this. We will lead. Young men, all the rest, submit. And we will all do this together, recognizing that Jesus is the chief shepherd. We will dance together as pastors and church members. We will dance together as elders and young men. We will dance together recognizing that the Lord Jesus Christ is actually the lead pastor of First Baptist Church Harrisburg, right? And you're doing a good job with this. Like really, I want, I want, to hear you, I want you to hear me say that. I want you to hear us say that. You're doing a good job with this. We don't feel like we are fighting you every beat along the way. We are dancing together. We have trouble when the music changes, right? That's, that's when we struggle in the dance, when the music changes. And we've got to figure out, oh, what, wait, we're going faster now. Oh, no, it's slowed down. Oh, no, it's, it's a waltz now. We have trouble when that changes, but we figure it out, right? And we make that transition, and we want to keep dancing well for the glory of God. And you're doing a good job with that. Let's dance, number one. Number two, put on humility. That's the call. Put on humility. If you're not a believer... Put on humility to admit that you are a sinner and repent. If you're not a believer, put on humility to trust Christ for your salvation and stop working your way toward him. You can't do it. Humble yourself and say, I got nothing. I got nothing to bring to the table. I need grace from the Lord. That's humility that leads to salvation. See his holiness, admit your sinfulness, and depend on Jesus Christ if you are not a believer. Do that today. Church. Christians, put on humility to live together as the body of Christ. We're going to have to work at that. that that's not going to come naturally. Humility is not natural. It's supernatural. Good news is you've got the Spirit of God living in you. You've got the attitude of Christ that is yours. I think that's the best way for Philippians chapter 2. Which is yours, this attitude which is yours in Christ Jesus. You've got that. Live it out. But it's going to be hard. It's going to be hard because like we've talked about in First Peter a bunch of times, this world is not our home. Nobody out there is doing that. Nobody out there is like humble, rejoicing in humility, pursuing humility. Nobody out there is doing that. But we're not from here. We don't belong here. And there's a war within us. My flesh is so proud. My flesh likes first place. My flesh hates losing, serving, giving, sacrificing. My flesh hates it all. But the spirit within me thrives on that, delights in it. There's a war within. And let's not ever forget there's a world to win, right? If they see us behaving with humility toward one another, thinking of ourselves less, putting others' needs above ourselves, sacrificing and serving selflessly, with one another, if they see that, they're going to say, those people are crazy. Those people are different. And we're going to say, that's right. Jesus changed us. Jesus changed us, and he could change you too. There's a world to win. Humility will stand out like a sore thumb in this world. Let's put it on. Let's put it on. Let's put that uniform on of humility. 
and serve one another for the glory of God. Let's stand together and pray. Lord, help us. Help us to dance together well. Help us as elders to lead in a way that honors you. Help us as church members to follow in a way uh, that, that honors you. And let us do all of this in humble submission to the Lord Jesus Christ, the chief shepherd, the lead pastor. Father, I'm thankful as one of those elders, as one of those pastors, to be in a church that dances well and pray for your grace to continue to dance well, even when the music changes, that we would dance well. And Father, I pray that you'll help us to put on humility as believers that we would live together as the body of Christ with humility. But I pray also for those who are lost that you would give them humility to admit their sins and repent. Give them humility to trust in Christ for salvation, to depend completely on him. Save them by your grace, for your glory we pray in Christ's name.